All right. If we could begin making our way into the sanctuary so we can start Sunday school. Thank you so much for coming this morning. We've got an awesome group today. This is pretty cool. Uh, we will begin with a word of prayer and then jump immediately into answering the questions for today. Let's pray. Lord, we are just excited at the energy this morning that is here, just the excitement to come and talk and worship you. I pray that as uh, your word is opened, that our hearts would be receptive to these truths, uh, that the things that we've spent this week meditating on would uh, speak to our hearts again, perhaps as we discuss them a little bit more deeply or uh, consider an application of the text that we hadn't quite considered before. Lord, we need these words today. This is like food for our souls. Please increase our love for your word. Help us to become uh, more and more like your son each day, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, please turn to 1 Corinthians 11 as we begin this morning. First Corinthians 11. I'll give you a little bit of background to this first question. Before we actually answer it, you can see uh, maybe in the text, you notice there are a couple headers there. Uh, you can see that our questions have to deal with uh, the Lord's Supper. And I want to point out a contrast that exists in the text here in the way that Paul introduces the section about the Lord's Supper. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 11, Paul says, now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain, th maintain the traditions even as, I delivered to them, even as I delivered them to you. Paul here is saying, hey, great job in doing this. And he goes on to talk about head coverings in the church in Corinth. But then we come to verse 17, and Paul says this, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Notice again verse 22. Right at the very end there, Paul says, What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. It is evident to us this morning that Paul is really displeased with the Corinthians and their practice of the Lord's Supper. So we come to our first question then. And to help us understand why Paul is so upset, what was wrong with how the Corinthians observed the Lord's Supper? What does the text say was going on here that Paul is so worked up about? Joanne? 
Ah, okay, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you're getting way out in front of me. That is awesome. That's a great answer. Notice the language of the text. Looking at chapter 11, verse 21, Paul says, here's what's happening when you eat the Lord's Supper. Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Look at verse 22. Those who have nothing are being humiliated. Even as we hear those things, maybe we're trying to figure out how that coincides with our experience. We have a little table that's set up in the back that has like a thimble full of grape juice and a wafer on the top, and we're trying to figure out none of us are going home drunk, and we're all leaving hungry. How is it possible that the Corinthians are getting drunk, and some are starving, and some are being humiliated? That just doesn't reconcile or correlate to our experience of taking the Lord's Supper. And what we have to understand is that the early church actually participated uh, or celebrated the Lord's Supper by eating an actual meal. Uh, there's records that say that um, there was actually like seven consecutive steps that would take place over the course of this meal in which uh, the early church would pause to pray or eat or, or do these seven things, but it was a full-on meal. And as time progressed and the logistics of feeding large amounts of people became more and more of a reality, uh, someone eventually said, you know what, let's scrap eating a meal for the Lord's Supper, and instead we'll do what we've experienced today, just a portion of juice and a little wafer to uh, remember Christ's death. Now, that's not all that happened. As Joanne pointed out, there was an economic element to this as well, right? There were presumably rich people in the church, and there were very poor people in the church. And you would think that at one of these communal meals, the rich people would bring enough for themselves and others. And the poor people, obviously, they're not going to be expected to feed everybody. They would bring what little they could. And you would think that maybe everyone would throw their food into the middle, and it would be dispersed evenly for everyone to be able to have a, a, a fair meal at the Lord's Supper. And yet, as you can tell from Paul's response here, this is not what was happening. The rich people were bringing a lot of food and eating it themselves. And the poor people who had very little were left to kind of just sit with their hands crossed at the table like, okay. They went home starving. Can you imagine how humiliating this must have been for a poor person? To be sitting perhaps at the same table as people who are supposedly your brothers and sisters in Christ and they are gorging themselves, they have excess to the point that they can leave the Lord's Supper drunk, and you're starving. And never once do they look at you and say, hey, would you like some food? There's just a total divide. Turn back in your Bibles, if you will, to chapter 10, so hopefully just one page back, and notice what Paul's expectation is for the Lord's Supper, or what he reminds us that it is communicating. Um, Chapter 10, uh, let's start at verse 16. Paul's talking about the Lord's Supper here, and he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Notice, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul is saying that here at the Lord's Supper, you have an opportunity as many people 
individuals to be one body. And yet one chapter later in chapter 11, it's evident to us that there are many people and not one body. They are all just gorging and indulging themselves and ignoring the poor people. So Paul actually offers some practical advice to the Corinthians to help eliminate some of this disparity that is happening at their church. That's the second question here. What are some of the suggestions that Paul offers in verses 33 and 34 that will help to solve the problem that has taken place in the Corinthian church? What solutions does he have? Claire. Yeah. Eat your meal. If you're hungry, eat at home. He has one other suggestion to these people. Cynthia. Wait for one another. Yes. I love Paul's solutions here. They're so practical. Right? It, it reminded me that Christ-likeness and taking steps towards it is not rocket science. It's not something that is like a mystery to us. How do I become more like Jesus? I don't know. Paul says, hey, eat at home if you're hungry. Wait for one another before you start eating. Maybe practically, we could think about someone who uh, spends a lot of time on the internet and it just wastes time throughout the day and they think to themselves, oh, I feel trapped in laziness and wasting my time. How can I ever break free of this? Paul would say, delete the YouTube app. Get a dumb phone. Maybe you find yourself really fatigued during the day and not able to give your best at work. You're always tired, Paul would say. Go to bed earlier. Manage your evening well so that you can be rested for the next day. Here Paul is. There are people who are abusing the Lord's Supper in these just really unfortunate, ungodly ways that are dividing the church. And Paul says, if you're hungry, eat at home. Wait for one another because the unity that this is supposed to demonstrate or that should mark this celebration is more important than you leaving here drunk. So according to these verses, what would you identify as an underlying principle that should characterize the way that we observe the Lord's Supper? What is Paul really trying to communicate to these people here? What needs to be present when you observe the Lord's Supper. Bunny. Reverence. I think that is certainly a component of it. Shane? Unity. Yeah, 100%. The church is being divided right now according to their current practice of the Lord's Supper. Paul is promoting unity totally. Now, because we celebrate the Lord's Supper differently today, as I've already mentioned, do you think that the unity component is not as important? I think we could say it's very important. We just need to be a little bit more thoughtful as to how we can show unity as we take the Lord's Supper together. Certainly, we're not all throwing food into a pile and distributing it evenly amongst ourselves. That was the way the Corinthian church could show unity. But we need to take biblical wisdom and say, how can we be unified in our current practice of the Lord's Supper today? I think we'll talk about that in just a little bit. But let's move on to the second part of chapter 11 and the questions here. 
What do verses 24 and 25 identify as the purpose of communion? What, why are we even taking these elements in the first place? Yeah, Andy. Yeah, it is to remember. Now, honestly, when compared to Catholicism, this seems a little anticlimactic, doesn't it? Catholics teach each time that this is offered, Christ's body is being sacrificed again. Whoa, that sounds pretty impressive. Hebrew says that is wrong. Christ's sacrifice was once for all, the blood's already been shed. The Catholic communion is not a biblical one, but it sounds impressive. Ours is just simply for the purpose of remembering. Okay, second question. Why do you think remembering is so important? Why do we need to do this? Titus. Totally. Yeah. How often, maybe this experience that I'm about to describe resonates with you. How often does God provide for you in a miraculous way, maybe even answering a prayer of yours? And you're like, wow, and the very next day you're slightly inconvenienced and you're like, God, where are you? Are, are you going to take care of me? God knows our propensity for forgetting. We are so forgetful. And so he has instituted this sacrament communion so that we remember regularly that Christ died for us, that we deserve to be condemned, but he stood in our place. And I think remembering these things elicits a couple of responses from us. First, when we remember what Jesus has done for us, hopefully it increases our love for him. As we remember again and again and again, what Jesus has done. I hope our hearts just well up with love for him. And secondly, I hope that that remembrance spurs us to greater Christ-likeness, where we remember, I was saved not to keep living for myself, but to follow Jesus, to give my life wholeheartedly to him. And so each time we observe communion, I hope two things are happening, that our love for Jesus is increasing, and that we leave here thinking, I can do better at following him. I've recommitted and repurposed myself to get up and follow Jesus. Moving to the third question here, given the context of this passage of Scripture, what do you think verse 27 is describing when it talks about taking communion unworthily? Before you answer that, this is something that is always in the back of our minds when we take communion, right? We know the warning. Paul says, listen, church in Corinth, there are people who are sick, who have died even because they have taken this in an unworthy manner. What can you deduce from this passage of Scripture that isn't just conjecture or speculation that would be taking communion unworthily. Joanne? Yeah, that's question number four, actually. That is one of the requirements before taking communion is examine yourself. Certainly one of the applications of that that we promote here is to confess some sins before the Lord. Do a deep search of your heart and say, am I hanging on to anything more closely than, more closely than Christ in my remembrance of him? Am I unwilling to let a sin go here? Certainly. Any other thoughts as to what taking communion unworthily might mean? Brenda? Brenda? 
Um, I'm, perhaps. I, I didn't have that in my notes, but if I had time to think about that, I'm sure that there might be a component there. Yeah, John. Absolutely. Yeah, that has to be the big one. Taking communion when there is division present in the church. And I asked you just a minute ago, even though we celebrate it differently than the early church, do you think that unity component is still important? Absolutely. Yes. And so let's think practically about how we observe communion today and how we need to do it in a spirit of unity. Does anything come to mind when you think about how those two things relate to each other and how we practice communion today. How can we do so in a way that shows unity with one another? Any thoughts? John? Absolutely. I think you hit the nail right on the head there. If there is outstanding disunity between you and another brother in Christ, and you come and you want to observe the Lord's Supper together, knowing that in the back of your mind, I'm not right with somebody right now, let me encourage you to abstain from taking communion. Because there is disunity that is present here. Because how can you treat someone six days of the week like they are inferior to you? How can you humiliate them and have conflict with them and then come here and give public demonstration that everything's okay? I think John is hitting the nail right on the head with that. Like Luke tells us, Jesus' instructions, if you are going to present an offering at the altar and you remember that you have something against your brother, what are you supposed to do? Leave the offering, go make things right with your brother, and then come back and offer that. I think that's great advice for how we observe the Lord's Supper. Make sure that you are right, I'll say, horizontally with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Make sure there is unity present here before you ever think about remembering that we are all one. Participating in this uh, sacrament that communicates to everyone here, yes, we all share in the body of Christ, when the reality is that maybe we don't that there is disunity present. All right, I think we answered the fourth question a little out of order, totally fine. We come now to chapter 12, and Paul addresses the topic of spiritual gifts. We kind of gather from 1 Corinthians 12 and following that the Corinthians cared a lot about spiritual gifts. This was something that was very important to them. They loved even the opportunity to flaunt or show off the gifts that they had. And there are some questions that maybe Paul is answering here. How do all of these gifts relate to one another? Is one gift more significant than another? And Paul is going to spend at least chapter 12 and following kind of answering these questions. So from chapter 12, I just asked you to list a key idea from each of these verses 
about spiritual gifts and their usage in the body of Christ. So who has, even if you didn't answer the questions this week, feel free to look at the text yourself and just call out one of the answers here. According to verse 7, what can we glean about spiritual gifts? Joanne? Ah, yes, for the common good. I don't want you to overlook this here, but spiritual gifts are intended not to puff ourselves up and to make us look good and say, hmm, I am pretty awesome, but to be used for the greater good of the church. Exactly, Joanne, thank you. How about verses 6 and 11? They share something in common there. What are those two verses teaching us about spiritual gifts? Lisa? Yes, they aren't inherent to us. Spiritual gifts are not something that we've just kind of developed. We went to college to, you know, get one. No, they've actually been given to us by God, by the Holy Spirit. Paul asks earlier in Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. Everything's a gift from God. So the spiritual gift that you have should not make us again think, wow, I am pretty great. No way. God has given us these gifts. How about verse 22? What does that teach us about gifts and their usage in the body? Brenda? Could you say that one more time? Okay, parts of the body are feeble. Let's look at verse 22. The parts that are weaker are indispensable. That is really interesting. Paul is saying is that every single person in the local church has value. They are a vital component to the health of the church. They're indispensable even. I think sometimes we can fall into this trap of creating like a hierarchy of spiritual gifts and thinking, well, these are the ones that are, you know, we got to hang on to these spiritual gifts over here and these people, but if this person falls off the tracks a little bit, you know, no harm to us. No, Paul is saying every single person, even the weaker parts, indispensable to the body of Christ. There is a lot of value attached to the individual there. How about verse 26? What does that teach us? Uh, Barb. Yes. Yeah. Barb was just saying, if you didn't hear her, that if one member suffers, all suffer. If one rejoices, all rejoice. And that she has felt that personally that she hasn't had to suffer alone, but our church has come alongside her and suffered with her. Of the two, I think that suffering with someone is the easier option, right? It's pretty easy to be a shoulder for someone to cry on in some respects. For myself, to rejoice when someone else is honored kind of leaves me thinking in some situations, why was I overlooked? right? And I think that exposes some pride, a, a, a disunity in my heart. But can we love one another enough that even when someone else is honored, we say, man, that is awesome. We, we're right there with you. We rejoice with you. How about verse 
31. I wanted you to hone in on that last phrase there. What does that teach us even about spiritual gifts? What, what, are, what are we told there? Claire? Mm, yeah, yeah. So that's where he's going with it. But the exact phrase at the end of verse, uh, at the end of chapter twelve, is Paul says, "I will show you a still more excellent way." What an awesome cliffhanger to end on. Because if you're a Corinthian person and you're like already into the sign gifts, like tongues, like prophecy, Paul's just told you to pursue healing gifts and all of these awesome manifestations of the Spirit, and he says there's a better way still, you're probably thinking, what is even better than this? How can it get any better? And we know, as Claire said, that what Paul is describing that's even better than these gifts is love. We are going to talk about that in a second, but in your own words, summarize the main point that Paul is trying to make in chapter 12. After considering all of those verses in relation to one another, spiritual gifts, the body of Christ, what is the point that Paul is trying to make here? Brenda. Yeah, these gifts are for the church. They're not for ourselves. We need to consider how each one of us individually can use the God-given gifts we have to not encourage individuality, but unity here to foster greater Christ-likeness and more effectiveness for a local church. Any other thoughts on that? Cynthia. Yeah, be content with the gifts God's given you. Have a mind of unity, of teamwork here at the church. Yeah, any other thoughts? John. I had one other thought that I wanted to add to this first question here. I think one of the things Paul is doing here is re, um, reworking our priorities or our understanding of spiritual gifts. He's helping us to realize, hey, don't over-exaggerate these things. These are certainly given from God. They do have value. They are good for the church. But they're not the pinnacle of the Christian experience by any means. There's something even better, something even more fundamental even to these awesome gifts. So let's not overblow them. Certainly use them, but chapter 13 is going to say, hey, how about you focus on love? Because you can have awesome spiritual gifts, but if love is absent from them, what do verses 1 to 3 teach us then? If love is absent from any of these things, then what value are spiritual gifts? 
Nothing. Paul gives us three examples in those first three verses. The first is talking about being able to speak in tongues to an extent that is just unbelievable. But Paul says if it's without love, you just sound like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul says you could have all of this faith to move mountains. You could do things that are beyond human comprehension, but absent of love, it's nothing. You could even make the ultimate sacrifice and give up your body and your possessions to be burned, but if love is not there, you've gained nothing. So how do you think this truth about love would have reoriented the Corinthians' thinking about spiritual gifts? Barb? They should be used to edify God and each other. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Claire? Wow, that's a really good point. Yeah. Any other thoughts? Lisa? Yeah, totally. Love seems to be one of the distinguishing marks of a Christian. Right? If you remember from John 13, Jesus says, this is how people are going to know that you are my disciples, that you have love one for another. First John says, if you say you love God but hate your brother, you're a liar. The truth isn't in you. Love has to be like the fundamental thing that Christians are known for. As I was thinking about how this would have reoriented the Corinthians thinking about gifts, I thought that this had the opportunity to be very encouraging to these people, because put yourself in the shoes of someone who has, as chapter 12 describes, a weaker gift. And you're in a church where these people are arranging this hierarchy of strong gifts to weak gifts, and you find yourself at the bottom of the totem pole. And Paul says, there's even a better thing, a better way than spiritual gifts. It's love. And all of a sudden, the playing field is leveled. And you realize, no, I might not have these awesome gifts, but I can love someone. And I can do it really well. And I can develop that. See, love isn't in competition with the, with the spirit gifts. It actually is evidence that the spirit dwells inside of you. And it is something that you can practice and pray about and grow in. I appreciate that the descriptions of love in the following verses are not the Valentine's fluffy emotions uh, definitions of love that we always think about. When, when you read verses 4 to 8, you realize that the love that Paul is describing here is a conscious choice. You have to choose to be patient with other people, 
to believe the best, to not be arrogant or rude. And I realized the second question of chapter 13 was a little personal, but I was wondering if anyone would maybe just be willing to elaborate on the first part of that question and say, hey, here was an attribute that jumped out to me, here's why. Anyone willing to share that? Maybe I'll start and just be transparent here. Unfortunately, there were several on this list that were like a pretty sharp rebuke to myself. Um, one of the first that came to mind was that love is not irritable. I find myself getting irritated very easily at times, wanting people to conform to how I think they should treat me or act in these situations, and when they don't, I get frustrated. Uh, when it talks about love not being resentful, that means to count wrongs that are done against you, and so when people do things to us, we go, that was the fourth time you did that to me. And here's the fifth, and I'm expecting next time I interact with you, you're going to do the exact same thing because I figured you out. Paul is saying love doesn't count wrongs done against someone. Any other attributes of love that just really leapt off the page to you? Barb? Never ends. And Paul actually is going to say that even into eternity, love never ends. Some of the other things do have an expiration date, but not love. All right, let's move on to chapter 14 then. Chapter 14 is best known for its discussion on what we call the sign gifts. These are the gifts in which it is evident that the Spirit is clearly at work because there is no way a person on their own could heal someone or speak in tongues or prophesy. These are what we would call the miraculous gifts of the Spirit. And there are kind of two schools of thought when it comes to the sign gifts, and I think that what they believe will be evident even by their name. There's a group called the Continuationists, who believe that the sign gifts exist to present day, that there are still people who speak in tongues, there are still people who heal. All of the gifts that chapter 12 talks about are still in existence today. Then there are some people who say, actually, I'm a cessationist. I think that these gifts, the miraculous ones, are no longer being practiced. And actually, they would both of these groups actually look at the scriptures as evidence for this. Uh, let's look back at chapter 13. Uh, verse 8, Barb just mentioned love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And so the question that both of these groups are trying to answer is, have tongues ceased? When the scripture talks about them ceasing, what event or when was that? Is that some you know, are they continuing to present day or have they ceased? And verse 10 is kind of the hinge on which both of these arguments turn. They have to answer what verse 10 describes as the perfect coming. Look at verse 9, I guess, and we'll read it into 10. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. So people have to answer the question, what is the perfect here? 
that is making the partial pass away. We see prophecies pass away, knowledge pass away. Presumably when the perfect comes, even tongues will cease. They're a part of this conversation here. So what is the perfect? Again, cessationists say that the perfect here might be the completion of the canon. So sometime around the first century, uh, cessationists say maybe it's the end of the apostolic age. That's when tongues have ceased. And continuationists say actually the perfect coming is the return of Christ, the setting up of his millennial kingdom and beyond. Then tongues and all these gifts are no longer necessary. That is a very simple explanation of this issue here. But the point that both sides should be able to agree on here is that chapter 14 sets very clear guidelines or parameters for how these gifts should be exercised. So even if tongues exist to this day, chapter 14 gives us some guidelines for them then. We'll talk about those guidelines in a second, but according to verse 12 and 26, what is the primary goal of exercising spiritual gifts? According to those verses, what's the goal there, Cynthia? Yes, the edification of the church. Can you kind of see Paul keep mentioning the same theme over and over and over again? From the beginning of chapter 1, he has been identifying divisions that are present in the church in Corinth. And over and over and over again, he is promoting unity. Now, what summary statement does Paul make for how these gifts should be practiced in verse 40? Andy. Yes, they must be done in a proper or decent and orderly manner. This verse is not telling you that your room has to be clean. This is telling us that the practice of spiritual gifts must be done in a way that is orderly, that is proper. Now, Paul is actually going to give us, I talked about guidelines. He gives us those guidelines in verse 27. Take a minute to look at verse 27. And here's what he says. Let's say that even speaking in tongues exists to this day, These are the parameters with which they must be practiced. Verse 27, if any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. So let's just notice some of the guidelines that Paul's giving us here. If speaking in tongues is happening, no more than three, and not three all at once, but each in turn, one at a time, And there has to be someone there who can interpret. Verse 28, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. These instructions are pretty straightforward, I think, huh? However, if you go online and find instances of people speaking in tongues, you will find that it is absolutely chaotic. It is large groups of people all speaking at once. In some instances, it's someone behind a pulpit speaking in tongues, but no interpreter. These people, if genuinely speaking in tongues, are not even following the clear guidelines of the scriptures. And so when evaluating a church or an individual and wondering if they are practicing, you know, true, even if tongues does continue to this day, and you want to evaluate a church that says that it does, notice how they practice these gifts. 
Let the scriptures be your guide. And if they are just all speaking at the same time, if there's someone up there that's not being interpreted that is speaking in tongues, they're not following the scriptures. Let me encourage you to consider what else of the scriptures they might be ignoring. If they're unwilling to follow the guidelines that are clearly laid out for us here. Just this week, I came across a, I think, an individual who is deconstructed from Christianity who compiles clips of all these people speaking in tongues and the way that they are doing it that is not decent, not in order, and he's mocking them. And it is bringing reproach to the name of Christ that these people are practicing tongues if they are doing that in a very uh, illegitimate and unbiblical way. Very quickly, on to chapter... Well, we're still in chapter 14. Um, let's move on to chapter 15 since we're out of time. Chapter 15 is that classic text on the resurrection. Uh, there is that awesome, like, poetic line at the end that says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? There's a lot in chapter 15 about the resurrection, but I wanted us to focus in particular on Paul addressing these group of people who are saying that there is no resurrection. We don't know what specifically they're talking about. Are they denying any resurrection, period? Uh, are they denying a bodily resurrection? We don't totally know, but Paul says, I'll humor you guys. If there's no resurrection, that these things are also true. Feel free, again, even if you didn't answer the questions this week, to look at these verses and just tell me what does Paul say must be true if there is no resurrection according to verses 13 and 16. Bonnie, if there's no resurrection, then what? Then even Jesus wasn't raised. That's square one. If there's no resurrection, then Jesus hasn't been raised. How about verse 14? If there's no resurrection, then what? Michelle. Our preaching is in vain, our faith is in vain. Verse 15, if there is no resurrection, then what? Julia. We've been misrepresenting God because this whole time we've been saying that the dead do raise, that Jesus has been raised, but if there's no resurrection, I would even say we've been lying about God, right? Verse 17, if there's no resurrection, what is true? Brenda. You're still in your sins. Man, verse 18, what point does Paul make? If there's no resurrection, then what, Claire? Then even the Christians who went to the grave thinking that they were trusting in a resurrected Christ, that they would open their eyes in his presence, are condemned. They're being tormented for their sins. Verse 19, what is the summary point here about the resurrection? Joanne? the resurrection didn't happen, then Christians are some of the most pitiful people on earth. Because we have placed our faith, conformed our lives, suffered persecution for a dead person. How sorry is that? So how important then is the resurrection to our faith? Very. It's everything, right? Sometimes we give undue attention, I think, to the cross it's awesome to think about, right? The fact that Jesus was on the cross, bore our sins on himself, we should celebrate that, but don't stop there. 
the resurrection is, is important as well. Clearly, Paul is showing us, here's what happens if there was no resurrection. In our presentation of the gospel, we have to be diligent in even talking about the resurrection and some of the things that it accomplished for us. Our sins are forgiven. We have hope of new life because Jesus, the first fruits of these things, raised himself from the dead. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we are just so grateful for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it has accomplished for us. Thank you so much that we are not trusting in a dead person for the forgiveness of our sins, for hope of a life to come. Thank you that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient, that he's alive today interceding for us at the right hand of God. We are very grateful for all that you've done for us, Lord, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.